think the reason we uh, read out that passage from Exodus is because it looks remarkably like what happens in Mark chapter 9, at the start of Mark 9. Uh, Mark is where we're looking at, so if you have a Bible, it would be great to either turn to it or scroll to it if you're in electronic land. Uh, just to let you know, if you're a visitor, we're working through this book of the Bible, Mark. Uh, we started at chapter 1, verse 1, where Mark says, The beginning of the Gospel. That means good news. Now, Jesus Christ the Son of God. Everything that Mark writes from chapter 1 through 16, and we'll get to chapter 16 on Easter Day. It's very exciting. Perfect time, Jesus' resurrection, Easter morning. It's going to be fantastic. Everything that Mark has put together in this account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection is summed up in those opening words. Gospel, good news. The Christ, that is God's promised King who saves, and Jesus being the Son of God. Today we have two passages which, as I looked at them at the start of the week, thinking about how on earth they were related, actually both have something to do with a taste of the future. A taste of the future. Uh, It's meant to be reassuring for Jesus' disciples to know what's coming because in the short term, following Jesus is not all that pretty. It's meant to be reassuring because in the short term, following Jesus is not that pretty an adventure. I'm going to pray and then we'll crack into Mark chapter 9. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us and you speak us words that we can understand and you speak us words that are good to us. Uh, Father, we pray for one another this morning that as we hear your word that you might uh, speak to us uh, wherever we are at in our journey with you. Uh, We pray that you would grow us in knowledge of you and in insight of what it means to know you and love you and serve you and depend upon you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so, two obvious parts to this passage. The first half in chapter 9, uh, from, the, from 1 to 13, the transfiguration where Jesus appears as kind of like a nappy stand commercial. Why than it? It's like, see the advertising copy there? In verse 3, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. You're going to see a really good video about that. Just hit up Joe Hayes' Facebook page. Hilarious. Uh, Matthew Sand, Blood of the Lamb. It's great. Um, the first episode is Jesus transfigured into this dazzling white image. The second is Jesus casting a spirit out of a boy who is deaf and mute. Now, what do these two things have to do with each other? I think both of them speak to the disciples who've just heard what type of Christ Jesus is going to be. Let me convince you of this. Just look at the bit before that we looked at last week. Uh, Over in chapter 8, verse 29, Peter answers to Jesus, who do people say that I am? Who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ information that we've known all along as the reader from chapter 1, but Peter has just worked it out. Not Elijah, not John the Baptist, the Christ, God's promised king. And for people living under Roman rule as the people of Israel, this was good news because the Christ was going to be the kind of butt-kickingest, Roman-smashingest, Israel-establishing ruler. He was going to be a winner. A great king. And so when, when Jesus kind of nods at Peter and says, yes, I am the Christ, Peter's excited. There's this sense of, well, 
Nothing can happen to us now because we're with the Christ. Life is going to be great. We're going to be undefeatable. Nothing will stop us. So then Jesus tells Peter about what type of Christ he is. See there in verse 31 of chapter 8, 831, what type of Christ is Jesus? Jesus began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Suffer, rejected, killed, risen. That's the type of Christ that Jesus is. There is victory for Jesus. There is defeat of death and evil, but it comes after suffering, rejection and death. And Jesus says in the verses that follow that we looked at last week, if you're going to follow me, your life will take the same pattern. You will be rejected. You will suffer. You will, as he puts it, carry your cross. The person carrying their cross has no future except certain death. That's what it looks like to be a disciple. And so the words of consolation in chapter 9, the transfiguration, are a reminder that even though Jesus is going to suffer, look who he is. Look who Jesus is. Listen to the words that come on the mountain. Let's look at the text as it unfolds. Verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John, it's like the inner circle of the disciples, led them up a high mountain where they're all alone. Mark, as in the rest of scripture, high mountains are the places where people encounter God. The reason we read from Exodus was to remind you that the kind of appearing of all appearings in the Old Testament when God revealed himself was on a high mountain and cloud and built and a voice spoke. All the same things happen here. Jesus, verse 3, becomes dazzlingly white. It's unnaturally white and pure. Remember, we're talking about a dusty land, an arid land. It's a picture of holiness, like we read from Isaiah. God is pure beyond our conceivability. God is pure, and when we see him, you do what Peter does. You kind of go, you don't know what to say. And verse 4, there appeared before Peter, James and John and Jesus, Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. I don't know what questions you asked when you read that. I think, how did he know? Obviously this is a sign that even in heaven there are name tags. Um, Elijah and Moses, Elijah and Moses are the two big guys from the Old Testament. Those who kind of sum up all the law and the prophets. All the different ways that God revealed himself to his people. It's not that Moses is the law and Elijah is the prophet. They're both, both of them. But this is a symbol of God speaking to his people. And so you need to get ready to listen. And Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, it's good for us to be here. He says, trying to convince himself. I think it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three booths. Uh, in Israel there was a festival of booths, um, tabernacles, same word, uh, which just remembered that God dwelt with his people. The idea was that this is a temporary dwelling on earth, but we're really going to live forever with God. Oh, let's build some booths. Uh, one for you, one for both, one for Elijah. He's out of his brain. He's so scared. Not a bad idea. You know, it's a, it's a religious 
response to what he sees in front of him. It's a, it's a godly and right thing to do. It's not silly. I mean, it's unusual, but it's not actually such a bad idea. Peter has kind of got the point that there are, this is a time when God is speaking to his people. What Mark's doing here is saying to us again and again, God's about to say something. Are you ready to listen? Verse 7, the cloud appears, and you're thinking Exodus, God speaking to his people from the cloud, it envelops them, and a voice comes from within the cloud, and this is standard procedure for God speaking to his people. We don't see a face when we see God. I can't draw you a picture of God, but I can tell you what he says. Prevents us, in God's goodness, from thinking that we know all about God just because we've seen him. We know about God because he's spoken to us, he's revealed himself in his words. The voice comes from the cloud, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Now, if you've got a Bible, just keep your finger down and flick back to Mark chapter 1. Flick back to Mark chapter 1. We've heard words like this already at Jesus' baptism. In Mark chapter 1, verse 11, as Jesus comes out of the water, having been baptised by John, you meant to hear Mark playing with these words. What's the same and what's different in Mark 1 and Mark 9? Mark 1.11 says, A voice comes from heaven, You are my son, tick, You my love, tick, With you I am well pleased. Ooh, it's different. Did Mark make a mistake? No, he's making a point. At the start of Mark, Jesus is getting God's stamp of approval. You are my son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. But flick back to Mark 9. On top of the mountain, the voice out of the cloud, the voice of God says, to those who just heard that the Christ will suffer, be rejected, die and rise again, if you are in any doubt that this job description of the Christ is the real one, think again. This is my son, whom I love even if he suffers and dies and is rejected and rises again. This is my son whom I love. What should we do? And all the people said, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. If you're going to take nothing home from this sermon except one point, this will be a good one. Listen to Jesus. He is God's son. God loves Jesus and Jesus has spoken to us. Listen to him. There's lots of different ways to listen to Jesus. You can listen to him by having the Bible read out to you. You know you can do that? You can, down, you can buy CDs or download MP3s of the Bible read out to you. If you spend a lot of time in the car or commuting and you don't like to read in those situations, it's especially good if you're driving, don't read. Maybe this is a way that you could get more of listen to Jesus in your head. Or maybe it's the start of the year and you've already failed your first set of New Year's resolutions and you're going to make your February resolutions uh, maybe this is a thing where every time you eat, you're just going to have a piece of the Bible open. You can print it out. It doesn't matter if it's not the whole book. It's much easier to carry if it's just one or two sheets. Maybe every time you eat or drink or every time you do sit down and do something, every time you open Facebook, you're going to open Bible Gateway first. Listen to Jesus. He's God's son. If you're not a person who has uh, faith in God yet, this is astonishing. You can hear God. The one that God has said, this is my son that I love. He's telling us all about who he is. Okay, end of listening to Jesus. The reason 
But at this point, Jesus is made very clear to be God's son whom he loves. It's because the disciples are in doubt, and frankly, the readers of the gospel, us, are in doubt that God's Christ can really be the Christ if he's going to suffer and die and be rejected. The disciples in the next few verses show that they have no idea of what it would mean for a Christ to suffer. Have a look with me. They've got no idea of what it would mean for a Christ to suffer. Verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave Peter, James and John orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Okay, Jesus has already said he's going to die and rise. He says, don't tell anyone about this nappy sand moment until I've risen from the dead. Verse 10. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead, rising from the dead, might mean. Now, you and I read this and we're like, dudes, we know the end of the story. Jesus dies and rises from the dead. It means rising from the dead. It means that a person who is properly dead properly comes back to life. That's the point of the gospel. The good news, the gospel, is that death is defeated. Sin, the worst thing it can do, is kill you. That's what the spirit tries to do to the boy. Throw him into the fire, drown him. The worst thing that evil can do is death. And in the gospel, in the good news, Jesus defeats death. This is why the gospel is good news. This year, in the years to come, you will have to deal with death and its implications in life. The good news of the gospel is that there is life beyond the grave. There's life in Jesus. The disciples are trying to work out what rising from the dead could possibly mean because their big stumbling block is that Christ couldn't possibly die. He's the Roman-smashing king of everything. What sort of Christ are you following? The disciples can't get that the Christ would suffer and die. But Jesus reminds them this has been the plan all along. It's there in verse 12. They asked Jesus, why are the pictures of the law so that Elijah must come first? The answer to that is, well, because it's in Malachi chapter 4. Elijah will come and then the kingdom will return. And Jesus replies, and this is why some people think Jesus is an Irishman. Did you see that? Verse 12, Jesus replied, to be sure. Uh, Elijah does come first and restores all things. You think to yourself, did Elijah come? Jesus is saying that what John the Baptist did is exactly what Elijah came to do to pronounce the coming of the kingdom. John the Baptist has performed the role of Elijah. Elijah has come back. And Jesus concludes the little section in verse 13 by saying, Elijah has come and they've done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. John the Baptist came, pronounced the good news of the kingdom, repent, the kingdom of God is here, and they did to John the Baptist what they're going to do to Jesus. They kill him. We're halfway through the section. The point of this transfiguration episode is, to, is for disciples of Jesus who have heard that he's the Christ to be assured that even though he will suffer, it is God's plan that he will suffer and die and rise again because he is God's beloved son. In the second half, we get another insight into what the future holds. It's a picture of resurrection. Just like the transfiguration is a picture of who Jesus will ultimately be, 
Jesus will be, sitting at God's right hand, perfectly, dazzlingly transformed into the new resurrection body, just as the transfiguration is a picture of the future, so too the little boy being raised from, effectively, the dead, is a picture of what will happen to the Christ. Even though he suffers, there will be life. You heard the story read out. I want to draw your attention to two things. Firstly, the words that Jesus says to the Father. Uh, Have a look with me at the story from verse 21. Jesus is speaking with the boy's father. How long has he been like this? The father answers from childhood and then describes what's going to happen. And the man says, you're going to feel the poignancy at this moment. You're going to feel the desperation of the father who brings his son to Jesus. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Put yourself in this man's shoes. You've, you've got this son who is out of, beyond your ability to help. It's a terrible situation for a father to be in. He can't do anything to control his son rolling on the ground, foaming at the mouth, throwing himself in water and fire. He says to this man who's healed hundreds, the word on the street is that Jesus can do anything. If you can do anything, please take pity on us and help us. And verse 21 has this, what I think is a bit of a raised eyebrow moment. Jesus looks at him, if you can, if you can, he says, Everything is possible for him who believes. Now there's a great verse to take right out of context. Everything is possible for him who believes. Does that mean if I believe I can fly? I can. Is this Jesus' ultimate self-help mantra? Anything is possible for him who believes. Don't buy the lie. This is a verse about trusting in Jesus. Everything is possible for him who believes that Jesus can help us in our slavery to death and evil and sin. If you can, everything is possible. Jesus is saying, I can't just help you a bit, I can help you everything. I can help you not just with having your son healed, but just like Jesus says to the man who was lowered through the roof, just like Jesus did for the man who was blind, your sin is forgiven. We have problems. We've all got problems. We've all got baggage. We've all got physical issues. Our bodies are, you know, on the way out from, you know, pretty much 18. Sorry. It's true. We've all got issues and we feel like, I just want some help. But Jesus knows what we really need. And he can do everything. The real problem for us is the evil that is within us. Our slavery to sin and death and evil. Everything is possible for the one who puts their trust in Jesus. Everything, wholeness, healing, life is found in Jesus. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, and this is this is the gold. This is the gold. Are you ready? This is meant to be us. Mark is setting this man up as an example of what it's like to trust Jesus without knowing everything. I'll say that again because it's really important. Mark is setting this guy up as an example of what it's like to trust Jesus without knowing everything. 
Look at the verse that says, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help my unbelief. Just let that ring around inside your head for a minute. I do believe, help my unbelief. Is this you? We are meant to be perfectly imperfect disciples. Perfect disciples in that we keep just following Jesus. That's the picture of the Christian life. I'm trying to follow Jesus. I'm putting my trust in him. That his way of living is right. That when he says, do this, it's actually good for me, even though I can't understand why it might be. Love your neighbour as yourself. How could that possibly be good for me? Treat your possessions as though they're for everyone. How can that possibly be good for me? Forgive those who sin against you. How could that possibly be good for me? Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptising, teaching them. How can that possibly be to my advantage? Jesus says, the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. The picture of discipleship that Mark is setting up here is that we trust Jesus even when we don't yet know the whole picture. I believe, I don't understand everything. I need Jesus' help even with my lack of belief. If you feel as though you haven't got it together as a Christian, welcome. The point of faith is that you're not perfect. So you haven't got it all together. Even the faith that we have, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10, even the faith that we have is a gift from God. It's not like we present our faith to God and say, look, look at my faith. That would be good to me. No, we come on our knees to God, saying, if you can do anything, and God says, everything. This is a word to all of us to keep believing even in our unbelief. There's a temptation, I think, for Christians who start to doubt whether, this, whether God could possibly be good in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. The thing that you want, that you have your heart set on, that just doesn't seem to be happening. How can God be good in infertility? How can God be good when I lost my job? How can God be good when people are treating me like this? How can God be good when these people are sick and dying? The temptation is to step away from belief. But the picture of true disciples is to say to God, I believe, I I can't undo what you've done on the cross and the resurrection. Historical acts don't change. I know you love me, but help me in my unbelief. Welcome to being a disciple, friends. I believe, help my unbelief. The second thing from this uh, little passage that I want to draw your attention to is the fact that the boy looks like he's dead. It may not seem like a really significant thing, but it's a reminder that these two little sections, the transfiguration and the healing of the boy, are meant to remind us of the future of those who trust in a Messiah, in a Christ, who suffers, is rejected, dies and rises. The boy looks like he's dead. The spirit comes out of him. And there it is in verse 26. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. Why does Mark record this for us? It's a reminder of what the life of discipleship looks like. It looks very unimpressive. Following this unimpressive Christ who suffers, is rejected, who dies and who rises. 
following him looks it looks like no life at all. It looks people look at it and go, that's not life. That's not true life. John chapter ten, verse ten. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Now this little section here about the boy being healed, about the father's unbelief and belief, is meant to remind us that following this Christ means being united with him in life, in death and in resurrection. Now you're a Christian, you're a person whose faith is in Jesus, it means that you're united to him. As Jesus died on the cross, you died to sin as well. As he was raised from the dead, God raised you to life in him as well. You just dab it onto Jesus' coattails by the strength that he gives you. Your status before God depends entirely on what Jesus has done and not what you have done. This is a great relief, friends. A great relief. True disciples don't have perfect faith. We have perfectly imperfect faith. And that has always been God's plan. I'm going to pray for us now that as a church we will continue to grow in being people who listen to Jesus and follow him even when it looks like it's crazy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you know us and you know what we need and we thank you that you speak to us in our weakness and need. We thank you that you don't just speak but you act. And so we thank you for our Lord Jesus who was born lived, spoke, suffered, was rejected, died and who rose from the dead. We thank you that in him is life and we pray Lord that you would graciously include us in Jesus, that uh, the little faith that we have, which comes from you anyway, that when we feel like following Jesus is too hard, too futile, too futile, too difficult, that you would remind us that you call us to keep believing even in our unbelief. Father, we thank you again that you are gracious to us, giving us much more than we deserve. And we thank you for Jesus' resurrection. And we thank you for the glimpse of the resurrection that we saw today of Jesus sitting at your right hand. Father, we pray for our hearts that you would help us to long for that day uh, when we will be with you and see you face to face. And we pray, Lord, that until then, uh, by the power of your spirit, you would strengthen us to continue in faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're just going to pause for a minute to give you time, as we do week by week, to reflect on what God's word has said to you this morning. I'll invite the musos to come up now, and in a couple of minutes we'll sing our final song.